If you've got your pamphlets with you, the Bible verse is on there. I was just checking if it's on the back, but it's not. So we're reading from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 22 from the NIV Bible. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your heart, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolises baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Thanks, Jan. You might want to keep those open because we're going to be looking uh, through... Uh, This part of God's Word, 1 Peter, chapter 3, 13 to 22. And I wonder, what what do you think of it? Those last bits, you know, preaching to the spirits in prison and that kind of tangled little section about Noah and baptism and being saved and and all of that. It's a little daunting, isn't it? Uh, It's a little hard to kind of get our head around what it's talking about. So... I reckon a good thing to do uh, when you don't understand what the Bible's saying is to ask for God's help. So let's do that. Let's pray. Let's ask God to help us uh, to understand his word. And, and not just to understand it, but for it to make a difference in the way that we live. Hey? Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. Um, we thank you that you've bothered to communicate with us, to help us uh, know you, help us understand who we are, how to live, what's going on in this world and so forth. Please help us now uh, to focus our minds on your word and we pray not only that we'll understand what's going on here but that you'll encourage us as we read it. Please help me to speak clearly uh, and truthfully uh, and we ask that each one of us will be keen to hear you this afternoon. Amen. I want to uh, try and share with you a few things just about Bible reading as we look at this passage this afternoon because Certain parts of the Bible are really straightforward. Uh, you just read it through and it makes sense. And probably some of the easiest stuff to read is what we might call narrative. It's just telling the story. So you read through the Gospels. Jesus goes to this place. He does this miracle. He teaches about these things. 
Uh, he meets various people, he calls upon them to follow him. That's not difficult, by and large, to read and to understand. That bit is sometimes a little bit more difficult to know how to actually respond to it, what to do, how do we uh, pick up on narrative and what difference does it make to how we live now. Other parts of the Bible are more like um, instruction. Uh, they're perhaps a letter that's been written by Peter, like this one, or by the Apostle Paul, written to certain Christians, perhaps in particular churches, and he wants to remind them of things. Uh, he wants them to respond to the gospel. He's either bringing a, a message of, of their need to change or perhaps an encouragement to continue living the way that they are. Maybe they've, they've got a misunderstanding and he looks to correct that. Or maybe they're in danger or threat from other ideas or other people. And so there's a, a comfort message. Maybe there's encouragement to stay firm, uh, to persevere. And there's all sorts of things that we see in different parts of the scripture. But sometimes there are bits that are just kind of difficult for us to know what's being spoken of. And the problem for us, I think, is that we're so far removed from the situation in which this letter was written. Now, for starters, it was written 2,000 years ago. Well, it's changed, hasn't it, in 2,000 years. Uh, it's written in a certain climate. Uh, I don't mean the weather. I mean perhaps society is functioning a certain way. The governments are, are putting pressure on people in certain directions. Uh, there's things that are part of people's experience that were common to them back then that maybe are difficult for us to understand now. So if I was to say to you uh, that, look, there's been a whole heap of uh, red weed down on Rainbow, uh, and with some of the rain that we're getting, uh, little vinegar and big vinegar uh, have been flowing more strongly. They've, they've carved out. And I suspect that uh, after the rain we've had this afternoon, if we walk down, uh, little vinegar's probably going to stink tomorrow morning. Now, how many of you know what I'm talking about? Right? How many of you got no idea what I'm talking about? Well, come and live in Bonnie Hills, all right? Come down to the beach, uh, enjoy what we've got here. Picking up on kind of the locals' lingo about the area that we live in and what happens at certain times with the tides, with, with the winds, uh, with the rain, and, and the little and big vinegar, that's kind of the name of the creeks that flow down. Not much more than stormwater drains sometimes, and therefore you do get that kind of smell when they run a bit dry and then flood. And we know, but imagine if we're writing these things down, how much do you think people would understand in Sydney? Or how much would they understand in Africa? And how much would they understand in Bonnie Hills in a hundred years' time? Or a thousand? Or two thousand? You see, just because it's difficult doesn't mean that it doesn't make sense. Just because it's difficult doesn't mean that it wasn't actually and therefore isn't now relevant. It might be very relevant, but we've got to kind of tune into what's going on. Now, that's a little bit of a big introduction, but I want to say to you that the most important thing in getting a handle sometimes on these difficult verses, like what is it to preach to these uh, spirits in prison? What, what was going on with Noah? One of the biggest helps is actually just to read it in the context and try and work out how the flow of the argument works. So we're going to do that. What I'm going to do uh, this afternoon is a little bit different, perhaps, uh, to what I might do normally uh, up, up front here. I'm going to take you through the passage quite quickly, 
trying to give you a summary of the flow of the argument. In doing that, my hope is that some of these difficult bits will kind of open up and will be clear on what they mean. And then what I want to do is backtrack, focus on one thing and look to apply it, uh, how we might respond to this bit that we're reading. So first of all, let me just take you through it. And I've I've got a little bit of an outline on the right-hand side of the page, uh, which I'll follow so that you can see as we move quickly through it. The other thing that I've done to help us, you'll notice that I've put the passage on the left-hand side of the page and I've chopped it up into little sections. If you open up your Bible, it wouldn't necessarily be chopped up in the same way. I've done that so as to demonstrate what I think are the little sub-points of his argument. So hang in there with me. It's a little bit of homework, a little bit of kind of background work that we're doing together tonight. So the first thing, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer what's right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. He's talking here about how Christians should face up when they are suffering, when they're persecuted, when, when people are treating them badly. How should Christians respond? Now, that's not a new theme in 1 Peter. We saw it all through chapter 2. Uh, it's not a new theme, but it's something that continues, and we'll see it through the rest of the letter. And what he says basically is, if you live well, people are less likely to treat you badly. It's just a kind of general statement. But the reality is, even if you live well... Some people might still treat you badly, even for being Christian. But if you should suffer for being Christian, for doing what's right, have the right perspective on that. You're actually blessed if you do. Jesus himself, in the Sermon on the Mount, said, Blessed are those who are persecuted in my name. But how can you think that you're blessed if you're persecuted, if you suffer? Well, it can only be by having a right understanding of what's going on. And so he says... Don't fear their threats, that is, those who might look to harm you. Don't be frightened by them. Rather, in your hearts, revere. Now, I've highlighted these words because in the original, each one is fear. Even revere. So it's saying, fear Christ as Lord. Not fear in terms of being frightened, but revere him as Lord. So when you're faced with hard times, try and have a true perspective on what's really happening. What... Christ is doing, not just what others are doing. Right? That's his first point. Now, I think what he does second is he actually raises a few more issues related to this before he resolves why you don't need to fear. And what he does in this next paragraph is to get us to think not just about ourselves, but about others and looking to their needs. And so he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now, I think the relationship of this paragraph to the previous one is, if you are suffering for doing good, you might have the temptation to retaliate. You might be thinking, hang on, I'm being treated unjustly here. I I want my revenge. I I want to get back. But he's saying, don't just think about yourself. In the light of what Jesus has done, 
which is actually what leads you to not worry about your suffering, others need to know about that as well. Others need to know the reason that you have for the hope that you've got. And what are the reasons for that? Well, look at the next paragraph here, because there's encouragement that comes from Christ. First encouragement is at the very heart of the gospel. It's what God has done in Jesus. And what has he done? Verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. So what he's saying is, if you want to understand how you can face up to suffering with a right attitude, not looking for revenge, here is your focus. Jesus Christ suffered for you. He paid for your sin. He has made you the guilty one, righteous before God. What more can he do for you? Not only that, but Jesus has been raised to life, giving hope for all eternity. See, here's a wonderful picture of God's goodness to us. That the guilty one, me, should have Jesus come, take my place and pay the price for it so that I can be declared righteous. And if I've been treated like that, and if I grasp that mindset, then I'll be able to bear up under unjust suffering. In fact, with God's help, I'll be able to focus not on my needs, but maybe even on the needs of those who might persecute me. Next aspect. Now we're getting to the tricky stuff, right? But but keep this flow of the argument. That is, injustice, seek to do good, keep trusting in Jesus, look out to others. Remember, God has dealt with your sin in Jesus to make you right and give you an eternal future. So then, after being made alive, that is Jesus, after Jesus was made alive, he went and made proclamation, some versions say preached, to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. What's that about? Well, let's assume, right, that the Bible writer, who is the Apostle Peter, is following a, a, a thread of argument. Let's not assume that he's taking drugs and has gone off on a weird tangent that means nothing. So we'll, we'll give him some credit to start with, right? Especially as he's inspired by the Spirit of God. Um, what has he just said? He said that Jesus died for you, that he was put to death in the body, that he's raised in the Spirit. Now, it's not saying that Jesus is raised to be a spirit because he's raised bodily as well, but he's raised by the Spirit, in the Spirit, into a whole new realm. And in his resurrection, Jesus demonstrates that he's defeated all the powers that stand against God. In the death and the resurrection of Jesus, all opposition to God, whether it be human or whether it be spiritual, is defeated. And so I take it, what's being said here is that after Jesus has been resurrected, he goes and preaches to these beings in the spiritual realm who are being held in captivity. And he's not preaching as in giving them a second chance to turn back to God. He's proclaiming that they have been defeated. It's it's an announcement of defeat. 
In fact, I was looking at one commentary uh, on this passage during the week, and, and it was written by an English guy. He, he had the hide to use as his illustration when the English beat the Aussies in the Ashes in 2005, um, and then they paraded through the streets of London in an open-topped bus, declaring their victory over the Aussies. I think what Jesus is doing here is declaring his victory over all the forces of the spiritual realm. You thought you had me, didn't you, when I was there on the cross? Ah, I've come to life again. I've been raised and you have been defeated. I take it, what he's saying, therefore, has relevance to them. If they're thinking that they're on the losing side, right, these Christians, because they're being beaten up, maybe they're being imprisoned, maybe they're having their homes and livelihoods taken away, maybe some are in danger of losing their life. And it might look like they're on the losing side, but remember, Jesus goes and announces his victory. Now, it is unusual language. It is strange. It's a little bit like me saying that when little vinegar after rain smells, it, 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 you've got to be there, right, to understand what's being spoken of. But I take it the people that Peter writes to understood it. And the, and the hint that I think they understood it is, look at the bottom quote that I put on the left-hand side of the page. This comes from 2 Peter, chapter 2. And it says this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, he did not spare the ancient world, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. Now, don't worry about getting that argument for a second, but just see he's using the same kind of language in the first letter and the second letter. And this picture of angels falling, that is sinning, and being put into the dungeons of hell, I don't think you've got to hear a picture of Jesus going and preaching to them, I'm going to give you a second chance. It's Jesus announcing that they're vanquished. They've been overcome. And it's also tied up with something that's going on back with the time of Noah. Again, you've got to do your homework. You've got to look at the context. In, in Genesis chapter 6, there is such widespread disobedience that God destroys the world, but saves Noah and seven others of his family. In fact, not only is there disobedience from people, but, but in Genesis chapter 6, there's a description of some people that, are, that get called sons of God. I don't know exactly who they are or what they are. They, they seem to be different to the human picture. And maybe it's what he's speaking about here. That is some kind of spiritual beings that, that are influencing people for evil and they too are being judged. Now, if you've been lost with all of this, right, let me bring it back. Quick summary. He's saying, Christians, if you think you're on the losing team, you're not. Jesus has conquered. He's just saying a little differently the, the way I just did, that's all. And, and then he goes on, um, because he's just talked about Noah and the ark being built and so on, and he has another point to make. That is, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolises baptism that now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you 
by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. That is, not only does Jesus go and announce his victory, but he actually goes to heaven, is at the right hand of God and lives out his victory. And the benefit is for the salvation of those who trust in him. Now, it's a little weird, again, to go from these, the, the thinking about the disobedience of people at the time of Noah to saving Noah, and then it's almost like he's, he, he's got a little bit of um, word association football going on. You know, well, that reminds me. Well, Noah was saved through water. Oh, and, and water reminds me of, of baptism, which actually saves you. Not the water that saves you. You're not saved by water. But, but baptism in this passage is your pledge of a clean conscience towards God. That is, you're putting your trust in what God has done for you through Jesus. You, you're not standing on your own merit before God. God is in the business of cleansing you. And you demonstrate that through your baptism as you become Christian. So I take it, just, just to try and walk back through the argument, first of all, he's saying, don't fear people. They can't do anything much to you. Just fear Christ. And your fear of Christ doesn't have to be fear of being judged by Christ. It's actually just reverence for Jesus. Um, and let that lead you to treat others well. More than that, you've got good reason for revering Christ because he died for you. And he was raised for you. And even if you should be imprisoned, if you should be killed, you're on the winning team. Jesus has made that clear. He's preached that. And he's now ruling at the right hand of God and he will save you and bring you to himself. Now, I hope that that's added a bit of clarity, just trying to unpack how it's working. I don't want to presume that I'm clearer than the word of God. Uh, what I hope, though, is that through talking it through with you, you've got a bit more clarity about what the word of God is saying. Now what? Well, I want us to go back to that second paragraph. Because there's, there's something very important, and I believe probably quite challenging for us in this paragraph. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you why you have hope in Jesus. That's a challenge, isn't it? Um, are you prepared to be able to give an answer to those who might ask you why you're a Christian? Why you believe in God? Why you aren't scared about death? But, but you're, you're actually looking forward to the time when you'll be raised to be with Jesus. To, to give an answer for these things. Are you prepared... Now, I think there's two aspects to being prepared. One aspect is being willing. Right? If you're prepared to give an answer, um, that means when the opportunity comes, you're actually willing to do it. That might take courage. 
Uh, it, it might take listening more deeply to what people are saying so that you're not preparing um, to respond quickly, but you're thinking into what they're saying and, and where they're coming from. Now, it hasn't happened to me a lot, but it has happened. And I've found that it's happened more often over the last few years uh, when I've been through the experience of struggling with cancer than it did previously. But I want to give you an early example. Uh, a young man comes up to me at church. Um, he introduces himself to me. He says, hi, my name's John. I live in uh, Baxter College at the University of New South Wales. Um, he knew that I led a group uh, in Baxter College, a, a Bible study group. And so John, who I hadn't met before, comes up to me and he says, um, I want to become a Christian. And I, and I said, okay, do you know what a Christian is? No, not really. But I, I look at the people who call themselves Christians and there's something about them, about the way they live, about, about their values, what, what, what they talk like, what... Their, their, their love for each other, their, their commitment to each other. He just noticed that they were different. Now, Baxter College was, uh, if you've seen the movie Animal House, yeah, you've probably got Baxter College. Uh, it was a pretty debauched place. And so the Christians stood out with their attitude, their, their behaviour, their words and so on. And this guy noticed their behaviour and he wanted to be like them. And so he asked me then about Christian things which he didn't know much about. Now, at, at that point, I was now being asked to give a reason for the hope that I had. I can't remember exactly what I said to him. I, I do remember giving him a book, uh, a book by John Stock called Basic Christianity. Um, and I said, why don't we read a chapter of it each and then we'll talk about it. My hope was that by the end of the book he'd become a Christian. Uh, I met with him two weeks later and he pretty well finished the book. Uh, and was ready to become a Christian. Now, and, he, and he did, and he's a Christian to this day. If someone came to you and they said, tell me why you believe what you believe, are you willing and ready to speak up? So the first thing, I think, is to be willing. The second thing is to be able. If you're going to be prepared to give an answer, then you have to have an answer to give. So attitude is one thing. Having something to say is another thing. It's very important, isn't it, that, that if people need us for something, that we're able to respond. I'll, I'll give you a, a, an example of this in my experience. Um, when I was at university, uh, I decided that I would become a taxi driver in Sydney so as to be able to pay my rent put petrol in the car or in the motorbike uh, and not be reliant on anybody else. And so I went to find out how to become a taxi driver. Now, it's a bit of a scam back then. Um, there was no way that you could learn every street in Sydney. But you knew they were going to test you on just about any street in Sydney. And so what they did was uh, they, got, they, they bought papers off people who'd done the course and, and they set up these taxi driving schools and and they would wrote, you would wrote learn the answers to a whole bunch of questions. Um, now, I think the pass mark was around about 70%. So there was some latitude. 
But there were going to be 20 questions in that paper and you had to get every one of those 20 right. And it was about the locations for hospitals. Um, Now, this is in the days before GPS, right? Um, Yes, you had these horrible big kind of uh, map books, Gregory's and the UBD and and so on. You remember those and you try and drive safely while you're reading a map and and looking out the window. Um, But but the idea, this is so important. See, if someone calls a taxi and um, and she's in labour, you don't want the taxi driver scratching his head, driving around in circles. Because he won't be long a taxi driver, he'll become a midwife very quickly, won't he? Um, you you want to know that, that people have got an answer. I want to know that, that my tax accountant's got an answer when I take all of my mess of receipts to him. I, I want to know that, that, that my doctor's got an answer when I go and ask questions about why I'm experiencing the symptoms that I have. How much more, if people come to a Christian, should they expect an answer as to how to become a Christian, as to what a Christian is, as to why you are a Christian? And I want to encourage you to have something to say. Now, when I started a university ministry in Canberra back in, the, in uh, 1990, it was, I, I took a bunch of students uh, away on a country mission uh, up the coast to McLean, Yamba and Lawrence, not too far north. 43 students I took away for a week and a half and I was using it as an opportunity to encourage the churches up there but also to get to know and to encourage the students in their walk with God. And so one of the things that I got every student to do over those 10 days was to stand up in front of the whole group of 43 and share what we called their testimony. Um, Now typically... People would share a story of, I wasn't a Christian, I became a Christian, um, and this is my life now. But there was a brother and a sister who got up, and, and I ha- honestly to this day, I, I've no idea where they were going with what they said. They talked about church, they talked about prayer, they talked about the Bible, they talked about what mum and dad thought about various things, they talked about enjoying coming on this mission and being part of this group. And I was puzzled, and I remember saying to each of them separately, let's try and boil this down. What's the most important thing that you have to say? And I still remember uh, the answer of one woman where she said, I think it's probably the power of prayer. And I said, what about Jesus? Where, Where does Jesus fit into all of this? Both for this man and for this young woman, they didn't know. They thought they were coming on a mission trip to share the good news with others, but they were coming on a mission trip to hear the good news for themselves, and both of them came to understand and respond to the gospel. Now, why am I telling you this? I want to encourage you to think of two ways that you might be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. Um, The first is to be able to respond if you've got no more than two minutes. Um, It's what people in marketing call the elevator pitch. That is, you jump into an elevator, uh, somebody asks you uh, about your work or or whatever, you've got from the first floor to the tenth floor to introduce them to that. Let's imagine that you've got from the first floor to the twenty-first floor to talk about why you believe what you believe as a Christian. Now, you can't say much, can you, in two minutes? But you can say something. And that something can point people to what really matters 
And it can be said in such a way that it actually invites the opportunity to find out more. I want us to think about this. And, and it's the, the type of conversation that I think can, can pop up all around the place. It might be a, a response to what you did on the weekend. Well, actually, believe it or not, I go to a church that meets on Saturdays. Oh, what did they talk about there? Well, there's an opportunity, right? Maybe they don't want to hear for half an hour. Um, you're not going to pull out the recording and say, just sit still, I'm going to play it all to you. You've probably got one to two minutes to captivate their imagination. Um, to have that first conversation that might lead to a second one. And it doesn't mean that you've got a, a, a set of words, right, that you just, hang on, let me try and remember. In the beginning was God and God did this. And I'm not talking about becoming a parrot. I'm talking about being able to talk about that which you're passionate about quickly. Now, I know if I go around this room, and I don't mean any harm by this, but, but, but I know that Marty's passionate about teaching kids, right? Um, and he's passionate about baseball. I reckon if, if you gave him a minute and a half to talk about kids or to talk about baseball, it'd be fine, right? Pretty good. I, I know that um, Gary and Liz are pretty passionate about teaching as well. They have little quotes on the bottom of their emails that talk about teaching, something they're passionate about. You could probably do that. Um, I know Jan and Steve have moved up here. They're passionate about living by the river um, and, and enjoying the, the pleasures of motorcycling, for example. Some of you would go straight to surfing. Um, I, I imagine Chris and Michelle, you'd talk about something that would freak me out because I'd never be able to do it. Um, there, there's things that we know, there's things we can speak about quickly and easily. Let's have our faith in Christ. Let's have our hope for eternity in that mix, right? Let's be able to have that kind of, let me tell you about Jesus. I, I, you know, I know he lived a couple of thousand years ago, but believe it or not, he transforms every decision, every important decision that I make today. Now, you haven't shared the gospel there, but I guarantee you, you've probably raised, wow, how does he do that? And then you might be able to take it a little bit further, right? I think it is helpful to have an outline of the gospel in your head. Um, do you want to know my gospel outline? It was given to me by a guy called John Chapman. I can remember it any time someone asks. It's God, man, God. What if you do? What if you don't? Five things, right? God created the world. It was beautiful. It was good. He wanted to have a great relationship with people. Man. But we decided we'd be better off without God and we've pushed him away ever since. Because of that, we actually deserve God's judgment. God, God still wanted to show his generous love towards us. And even though we rejected him, he didn't reject us. He sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross, to be raised from the dead. So if we put our trust in him, we can be saved. What if you do? Well, I think I've just got to answer that. If you trust in Jesus, you can be saved. What if you don't? Well, friends, it might be kind of okay to live without God here, but the Bible warns us that if we live without God for all eternity, that's devastating. There's a little gospel outline. So I want to encourage you with that. Um, Secondly, and I'm going longer tonight, even though the, the sermon was short, the application's a lot longer. Secondly, I think it's terrific to be able to think about sharing your testimony. Everybody has a testimony. Your testimony might be this. Mum and Dad loved the Lord Jesus Christ, 
and they read the Bible with me and they prayed with me and I could see that their trust in God was so real that I also wanted to put my trust in Jesus and I've always done that and I've never looked back. Let me tell you why I put my trust in Jesus today. Because I'm convinced that he is God, that he died for me, that he rose again from the dead, that I can relate to him, that I can trust him not only with my life but with my death into eternity. Now, I've shortened it, right, for, for reasons of space, but some people think they've got no testimony because they grew up in a Christian family. I want to say you've got a better testimony than those who, who kind of missed out and became Christians later in life. But it might be that you have a before and after story. It might be that you lived in such a way as to push God away in all sorts of possible means. But then you recognise the fact that, that God kept intervening in your life. He, he kept challenging you with things. He caused you to think whether this life was all there, all there was. Because you were pouring everything you could into, into your work, into your pleasure, into your relationships. And, and you know that deep down there was this hollowness about it just didn't ultimately satisfy. And then I was, uh, I was invited along to church by a friend and, and he, he, was, he was actually talking about the fact that, that it doesn't matter what we put into seeking pleasure, working our butts off, kind of find the perfect relationship. It's always going to be hollow because God's actually made it that way so that we might reach out and find him. And I did. I went along to this group called Christianity Explored and, and they were... They were opening up what the Bible has to say about Jesus. And, and the more I went, the more excited I became. I realised that I needed Jesus. And so one night I knelt down and I just simply talked to God and I said, God, will you please forgive me? I want to thank you for sending Jesus. And I want you to help me to trust in Jesus and to live for him from now on. And that's what I've been doing now since I was about 22. It hasn't always been easy doesn't mean there haven't been times when I've doubted and struggled. Um, but I want to tell you, I, I, I believe that, that you too should come to know God. And uh, I, I think he's the answer to a lot of the things that, that you're looking for and, and maybe not even knowing that. Now there's an example. All right? um, both those two testimonies, by the way, are kind of mine. And my mum and dad were Christian. But when I got to university... I wasn't sure whether I'd just kind of followed in the family kind of thought world. And so I had to explore it for myself. And so I got answers to those questions. Will you be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have? I never anticipated this would happen. but um, And I hadn't thought of it in these terms, to be honest with you. I think until today, God actually led me to write a book. And the book is about giving a reason for the hope that I have. It's called Hope Beyond Cure, and I wrote it at a time of facing a terminal illness. Uh, and there's copies of that on the back. If you want to have a think about how to shape uh, your testimony to point to Jesus, and God willing, that's what the book does. All right? Well, I think we're, we're kind of reaching the end, but 